Uh, every once in a while, I'll get a note of encouragement from somebody to, to, to thank me for uh, something I said in a sermon that was really helpful to them. And that's a very humbling experience. It's also a very positive experience to think that in some small way you could be used by God in somebody's life to, uh, to impact that. But I got, I got a note this week uh, that really um, just spoke to my heart about how I have the opportunity to help people in very practical ways. Uh, hi, Tom. My dad has been driving me insane this past week, trying to figure out where you had mentioned you got those mole traps. <laughs> I did not catch the name. I did mention the mole traps last week. I figured the best way to find out would be to ask you directly. I did not think we had a mole problem, but I guess I have not been paying enough attention. Should have been looking out in the backyard a little more. Well, if you do not mind sending me the name of the store where you picked up those mole traps, it would be amazing. Okay? It would be amazing. And I'll be sure to tell people at the store that it was because of you that we went there to shop at the product. Who knows? Maybe there's a future discount for you the next time you're in this store. So I am so thankful to, uh, to be able to be used by God uh, to conquer the mole problems in the greater Kirkwood area. That was really, that was sent to me by a very dear friend, so I, I'm kind of poking fun at it a little bit, but I really, I appreciate any feedback I get. Uh, I want to ask you two questions as we begin this morning. First question is this, what do you do when you've really wronged somebody, family member or a friend, but you've really done something uh, that's hurtful to another person? Uh, in the early years of our marriage, I really was pretty good at hurting Cindy, uh, much more so than I would care to admit, but I really was a pretty lousy husband. And there would be times in our relationship where I would wound her deeply. And although she was the person that I probably needed to see the most to, uh, to ask for forgiveness, to repent of the harm I caused her through my words, she really was the last person that I wanted to see. I, I, I would leave the house literally for hours after we would have an argument. And I think part of the reason is this. When you sin, when you harm another person, when you, when you commit a wrongdoing that's relationally driven, that, that, that brings uh, strife into a relationship, sin causes a rift, uh, which uh, in, the, in the relationships for which we are created. When I say something against Cindy that is hurtful, I, I put up a barrier. I, I create a canyon, so to speak, between the two of us. And it drives us apart. It drives us apart physically. It drives us apart emotionally, relationally. What I want to do is I want to go run and hide. I want to avoid admitting that I was wrong. And I want also to not have to do the hard work of restoration. That's my first question. What do you do when you really wronged someone? My second question is this. What does God do when he knows that we've really blown it? How does he react when you've really messed up? What's your inclination? Is your inclination to run towards him and to confess your sin? Or is your inclination to think, you know what, God really probably is pretty unhappy with me right now. Uh, he's probably pretty disappointed in my actions. And you begin to feel shame and you begin to feel guilt. And your inclination is to run and hide because you think God is vindictive. Let me give you a principle this morning that we're going to operate from out of this passage. And the principle is this. Sin always brings spiritual and human alienation. Sin always, 100% of the time, brings spiritual and human alienation. But the second part of the statement is this. God always pursues restoration. God always pursues restoration. Genesis chapter 3, just three verses this morning, verses 7 through 9. Adam and Eve have uh, just eaten 
of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And upon their taking those first bites, the author of Genesis, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes this, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone be glory. Let's pray for just a moment. Father, as we launch into a time now where we want to worship you with our minds and our thoughts and our emotions, Father, I pray that my presentation would not be a distraction to your truth. Lord Jesus, you have a message for every heart in this room, whether we have known you for years and call ourselves your disciples or whether we just wanted in here this morning with a friend and we've never even cracked the Bible open in our lives, you have a message for humanity. You want to speak your truth into our lives. So, Father, I pray that you would do that. I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and would be among us and would open even the hardest of hearts to your truth. Father, I confess my sin to you. I acknowledge that uh, I I fit the the description of Adam and Eve in this passage to a T. Uh, I am not worthy to, uh, to preach this sermon or any sermon for that matter. So I confess my sin to you and ask that you would forgive me and ask that you would not allow me to stand in the way of what you want to say to us this morning. So Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come and that you would be our teacher. We pray in your name. Amen. I'll give you four observations about this uh, initial exchange and interaction uh, based upon what's happened. Ab and Eve have been in the garden. They've been in a perfect location. God has given them everything they could possibly want or need. They're in a perfect relationship with God. And Satan comes along and, and, and indwells uh, the form of a snake and tempts Eve to eat of the fruit. And Adam is standing there right with her, and she does so. And in verses 7 through 9, we find out the immediate repercussions of what happens. And I want to offer those to you this morning by way of four observations and some thoughts of application. The first observation I want to make about this text is that we see a startling discovery. Look at the first half of verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Up to this point, Adam and Eve had been under God's perfect provision. They They had enjoyed innocence with God and innocence with one another. If you go back to to chapter 2, verse 25, uh, this is not the first time it talks about them being naked. In chapter 2, verse 25, it says they were naked and they were not ashamed. In other words, there, there was something pure and innocent in their lives that allowed them to live in complete transparency and complete transparency with one another and complete transparency with God. But by this deliberate act of disobedience, We can't say Eve didn't know better. We can't say Adam didn't know better. God was very clear. You may eat of every tree in the garden, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day you eat of that tree, you shall die. This is nothing less than deliberate disobedience. And it changed all of that perfection. God had promised to Eve. He had said, your eyes will be open if you go back and look at at verse 4 of this chapter. Satan says, no, if you eat of this tree, your eyes will be open." He gave them enough of God's truth sprinkled in there to make the deception worthwhile. And the reaction is that now they see themselves in a way they were never intended to see themselves. 
And for the first time, Adam and Eve actually feel naked. They feel shame. Derek Kidner, who is a great theologian, says this about this particular verse, sin's proper fruit is shame. In other words, that's how they should have felt. They should have felt ashamed for what they had done by deliberately disobeying God. And now they feel this need to cover. They feel that, that there's, there's something gone tragically wrong. Uh, Eve's eyes were open, but not in a way that God intended. Eve should have rejected Satan's suggestion. She should have, she should have not uh, been sucked into his temptation. It would have been better for her to say, Satan, I'm not going to try to debate this with you. And then gone to God, and if she didn't understand, she could have said, you know, Father, can you explain good and evil to me? Can you explain this tree? And he would have loved her, and he would have welcomed that question, and he would have taught her good and evil in the context of his perfection. I remember when I was in fifth grade, and I, and I tried my first and my only cigarette in my entire life. And uh, my parents had always told me not to smoke. Uh, they had explained that to me, but one of my buddies stole a cigarette from uh, his dad's uh, pack of cigarettes. We went out back, and, and we lit it up, and I was kind of puffing on it. He said, no, that's not how you don't puff on it. You inhale. Take a real, suck it in, take a real deep breath, and I did that. And then the next thing I remember was that they were slapping me on the face because I was lying on the ground and, uh, and feeling like I needed to throw up. It was a really bad, bad experience that I didn't ever have to have because people who had loved me People who cared about me had warned me. But my buddy changed my mind. It caused me to look in a different direction. And I had a startling discovery. This discovery of good and evil made outside of God's gracious provision and care. And now suddenly Adam and Eve look and they realize that they're naked. What will be the result? Well, second observation is not just the startling discovery, but in an inadequate cover-up. Look at the second half of verse 7. Their eyes were open. They knew that they were naked. What did they do? And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Adam and Eve's uh, seeing their nakedness in a very different light and feeling shame and guilt now feel this urgent need to cover up. Now, this sewing of the fig leaves is is really a sign that, that nothing good is going to happen this point going forward. I mean, this is the first opportunity for this question to be asked. Do these fig leaves make me look fat? <laughs> I, I'm not kidding you. I had an hour-long debate with a buddy of mine the other day. Whether, what was the proper answer to that, to that question? Was it ever? I said you should never lie. It's never, you should never offer lie. So what about this question? And then we, we went from there. But this, this is going downhill. There, there's no good place between Adam and Eve for this conversation to end. The only maybe good thing that came out of it is that the fashion industry was born on this particular day, but you could even debate that. But we're in a situation now where the need to cover up, there's now something wrong where before there was only perfection. There was only beauty. And I believe that this, you know, the sewing of the fig leaves together, this need to cover physically actually points to a deeper issue. There's a spiritual isolation from God that has now been introduced to mankind for the first time. No longer are Adam and Eve in a perfect friendship with God. They now find themselves at odds with God. They find themselves going in a different direction than God had called them to, and they have a heart problem. They have a soul problem that figs can't ever solve. And yet they feel the desperate need to do something because the world looks very different than it did 
just a few moments ago. And ever since that first cover-up in the Garden of Eden, men and women, boys and girls, people of, of every skin color, every race, every nationality, this sin disease knows no bounds. Ever since that happened, going forward to this very moment, we have been covering up all of our lives. We have spent our time trying to solve a spiritual problem by covering things in our lives. So one of the questions I would ask you this morning is what are your fig leaves? What are the things that you put in your life that you think will, will, will cover your shame, will cover your feeling of isolation, will bring meaning to your life, will bring purpose to your understanding of who you are and how you fit into this world? And my second follow-up question to that is, is what sowing are you doing to hide your nakedness? And has it helped? Has it solved the deepest problems of your life? I would dare say the answer to that question is no. No matter how hard you try to look good, no matter how successful you may be in business, no matter how great a parent you might be, no matter whether you're an A student in your, in your high school and you're very popular with all your friends, man-made sowing of fig leaves can never solve the deepest spiritual questions of the heart. And Adam and Eve introduce us to an inadequate cover-up, and we've been trying to replicate their actions ever since. But it actually gets worse from there before it gets better. In verse 8, we see an ill-conceived solution. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. What is the, the offspring, so to speak, uh, from the union of guilt and shame? Is it not alienation? Adam and Eve withdraw from God. They hear God coming into the garden, and whereas before they would have run quickly to meet Him, to tell Him all the things that they had discovered new that day about creation, and to ask Him a million questions, just like your little ones do when they run to the door when you come home from work. Now they're running in the opposite direction because somebody threw a baseball through a window. <laughs> somebody, somebody broke Grandma's 200-year-old porcelain plate. <laughs> playing in a room they weren't supposed to be playing. And something's gone wrong, and now we want to get away as fast as we possibly can. Adam and Eve fear confrontation. And it's easier to run and to hide than to face the consequences of our actions. One of the hardest things that I've had to do in my life is to grapple with who I really am. To not make it about other people. It's so much easier. We're going to see when we, when we pick back up this, this study uh, later in the summer, we're going to see uh, how Adam and Eve place the blame on others besides themselves. It's so spiritually difficult to resist the temptation to run and to hide. And yet we've been running and hiding ever since Adam and Eve made this initial choice. I asked some people this week, I sent out an email and I said, uh, this has helped the preacher preach the sermon this week. And I asked people, how do you run? How do you hide from God? And I got several different answers. I'm not going to give them all to you, but I just want to give you a couple of them. These are from a couple of folks in our congregation. And they, and they wrote the following. This is, this is the first one. I stopped praying. At some level, I act as though prayer were like a phone call. And if I don't call, it leaves them in the dark about what I'm up to. And then a parenthesis, similar to how I treated my parents in college. I like that. That's pretty that's not good. I have another kid going off to college. That's not funny at all. Um, I also feel like he does not actually want to hear from me in those times because I have been so disappointed. So I wait until some time has passed, whether whatever I did feels like it's part of the past. Then I can talk to God about it as if I'm not the person responsible anymore. He goes on to say, I still ask for forgiveness, 
But it's like when you ask forgiveness of your wife for acting like a jerk on your vacation three weeks ago. And you are just asking because it's the polite and right thing to do. So much easier than asking forgiveness for something you just did. In the first instance, at the moment of asking forgiveness, you're really a pretty upstanding guy, ready and willing to rectify an issue from the past, so honorable that you are not willing to leave it unaddressed. But in the second situation, you are just the undeserving jerk who screwed up and are now at the other's mercy to forgive. So that's one answer. The other answer I got was this. Uh, Not funny, sad really, but I will not open emails like the prayer list or the skewed logic. Skewed logic is a devotional that I write every week that if you subscribe, it comes right to your, uh, right to your computer and your, your email inbox. So I, I won't open the prayer list or skewed logic in order to avoid dealing with being nudged by the Holy Spirit while, while knowing full well God knows and saw everything. I will do similar things at home. If I see a Bible on the table or on the bookshelf, I will quickly avert my eyes not to have to deal with my sin. Kind of like when you were a kid, standing out in the open, but covering your eyes to hide. I'm still plainly visible, but if I can't see, maybe he can't either. Worst part is the fact that this is all a conscious decision. You could probably resonate with some part of those messages. Maybe we run and hide with, uh, with busyness. Maybe we run and hide with, with work or we uh, indulge in sinful activity, or maybe we just uh, submerge ourselves in good works, <laughs> thinking that maybe in some way uh, we can counterbalance the scales and offset what we have done. But we, like Adam and Eve, when we, when we hear the Lord coming, tend to be the ones who run and hide because that's what sin does. Sin alienates us from God and from one another and we spend all of our time coming up with ill-conceived solutions that will never work and never solve a problem. So the first three uh, observations out of this text don't leave you with a whole lot of hope. An alarming discovery and an adequate cover-up and an ill-conceived solution doesn't sound all that good, but there is one more observation in this, and it comes out of verse 9 in what I call a searching question. It says that they were hiding themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees. But the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? The man and the woman are busy avoiding the effects of the broken relationship that they've created. And that might be possible with human relationships. I can avoid you for a while. As I said earlier, when Cindy and I would go through rough patches and it was my fault, I would just leave the house. And I would would be gone for hours on end and I would busy myself with other things to try to avoid it. You could do that and maybe get away with it to some degree in human relationships, but you cannot do that with God. It will not work. Did you hear the psalm that Jeff read this morning, Psalm 139? Where can I go to hide from your presence? If I go and dwell on the far side of the sea, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths of Sheol, you are there. If I, if I fly on the wings of the dawn to the farthest corners of the world, you are there. God does not disengage with His people because of sin. And he asks, I think, the most important question that was ever asked in all of human history. Because when Adam and Eve are hiding, when Adam and Eve are saying it's over, it's done, we can't be in relationship with God, we probably don't even know why yet, we probably haven't figured it all out, but we know something's terribly wrong, let's get out of here, here comes God, God comes and he pursues. And he asks a very simple question. And I think the most important question of all of history, where are you?
Man runs, but God pursues. Now, you have to come to grips personally with what is the tone of this question. You have to think through this for yourself because it will tell you a lot about what you believe about God. If I brought several people up here and said, okay, read this question out loud, you think the way that God would have, would have asked it to Adam and Eve, some would say that God would come and say, where are you? Some of you say, where are you? Some of you say, where are you? Because our perception about God tends to be we think He's disappointed as the author of the question I asked wrote in his response. We tend to think that God is angry. We tend to think that God is hurt and that His reaction is going to be based on those emotions because that's how we base our answers in those particular moments. And we hear in our hearts and in our minds the voice of condemnation. And that God's tone is one of disappointment or anger or hurt. It's hard to imagine that there would be any other reaction because it's probably the rare exception in your life when someone whom you have hurt deeply actually has responded to you in a godly way, has actually pursued you to bring true reconciliation. Most of us would have no idea what that looked like because it's happened so rarely in our lives. But you have to remember when you answer this question, you can't answer it void of the character of God as described to us in all of Scripture. And if you just take the first couple chapters of Genesis, let me remind you that God created man in His image. Why? So that He could be in a loving and trusting relationship with Him. God didn't say His creation was very good until He was done creating man in His image. He had given man every good thing for life. He had planted him and his wife in the Garden of Eden. He had given Adam and Eve to one another. That's the character of God. The character of God is a gracious and giving and loving character. And He is an all-powerful God who spoke the universes into being and He is caring enough that He's not going to let a fallen angel ruin His plan for mankind. Hardly. God comes calling. But He comes calling with a voice of care and a voice of love for His children. Will there be repercussions for the choice that has been made? Yes, there will be. Will the disobedience need to be addressed? Will it be addressed? Absolutely. You can count on it. But it will be addressed with redemption and with salvation. God alone has the character and the ability to perfectly wed justice and mercy together. And friends, that's what the rest of Scripture is all about. It's about God dealing with our sin head on. He isn't going to run. He isn't going to hide. He isn't going to pretend that you haven't ever done anything wrong in your life. He knows everything you've done wrong. And probably some of the stuff you don't even realize you've done. Some of the things I don't even think about that I've done. He knows those too. And He won't leave that unchecked. And yet, as a parent who loves their child, And Adam and Eve's disobedience has caused great harm. And yet God seeks them both with the capacity and a willingness to restore the relationship. And so God comes calling. Where are you? Because He doesn't want us to run from Him in the act of sin and the follow-up, but rather He wants us to understand that His grace and His compassion knows no bounds, and He calls us to run to Him to plead for mercy and forgiveness that He can give. 
1763 along the coast of England, uh, there was a minister who was making a journey uh, from his village of Blagden. And he was traveling along the road which, which led by the jagged rock formations known as the Burrington Comb uh, in, uh, in uh, Somerset, England. And as he traveled along by this rocky crag, a terrible summer storm blew up, and he was fortunate enough to be close enough to the rock formation that he could go and, and he could uh, hide in a cave while the storm passed. And uh, as a, a minister who has a lot of time on his hands with not too much else to do, he starts thinking about, you know, life uh, and, and the world and what God's doing. Uh, and as he began to sit in the midst of that storm, but underneath the rock formation, uh, some ideas began to percolate in his head. And he began to, uh, to jot them down on paper. Uh, Augustus was baptized this morning. The guy I'm talking about is a guy named Augustus, so you can, you can uh, tie this to him. His last name was Toplady, which is a little different than, uh, than Reinbold. But Augustus Toplady sat in that cave, and he wrote a little ditty called Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Sin always... 100% of the time is going to cause spiritual and human alienation. But God always pursues restoration. What do you do when you offend somebody else? What do you do when you offend God? Through the cross of Jesus Christ, you run to Him as a child runs to a father. Let's pray together.